1: Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics Podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is Why NPS Matters with my friend Ian Aguilar. How's it going, Ian? Excellent, Joe. Good to see you. I'm glad to see you, too. So um, I met Ian, I think, five years ago and very smart interesting guy and uh, we were talking about sales stuff five years ago and then we just we just reconnect i haven't talked to him in years and still working on very interesting stuff like nps which is net promoter score and we talked about it i don't know three weeks a month ago and i said you got to come on my podcast and talk about this so ian please introduce yourself and your company
0: my name is ian aguilar my company is urgency selling and I work as a consultant for marketing and sales teams and improving the customer experience and shortening those sales
1: cycles. And you normally work in logistics and transportation, right?
0: Focused exclusively in logistics and transportation technology, anywhere that's impacting the customer and the operation. Yeah,
1: which is how we got to MPS. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Ian, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? What were you like as a kid? And then give us some career highlights before you started urgency selling.
0: Yeah, well, I grew up in Los Angeles, so Southern California, where there is no weather. And, you know, my both of my parents were musicians, but they really? kind of came from different schools. Well, they're both piano players, but you see, my, my mom is classically trained. She comes from that, that Mozart and Bach type background, wow. very structured. Whereas my dad, I mean, this is years ago. When he was a young man, before he could even read music, he was fluent in everything. He could pick up a guitar, he could pick up a trumpet, he could pick up anything and play it in five minutes. So I came from halfway in between those two worlds. There's a way to learn it by the book, and there's a way to learn it just by getting your hands dirty. And you can have fun doing either, you know. So when I got a little older, I went to school at Mount San Antonio, which is out there in Walnut, California, studied marketing and communications, and really growing up in the industry was through the Emory-Menlo-UPS transitions. So I Ah. got to develop from an operations background into sales experience, both at the field and the enterprise level, and then really started developing my passion on the marketing side
1: too, where I could help create the right conversations and get them off to the right foot. Yeah. You know, there's an interest, you mentioned being halfway between kind of classical and and the more intuitive, the more uh, subjective, the, the just jump in and and you kind of have both of that. And I think what's interesting, we'll get into this as we talk, sales has traditionally been thought of as the wild card, right? Where operations people say, hey, we have processes and we do things this way. Uh, and then finance people obviously have processes and procedures and rules. Then you get over to sales and marketing. And in recent years, we're trying to do better at, mar- at m- measuring things but whether we're measuring the right things we never quite know and then what's also interesting and it bugs me sometimes when somebody says the sales process because rather than talk about the sales process we should be saying we don't control the process for how they buy all we can do is try and understand their buying process and plug ourselves into it right so if they're online a year before they pick a 3pl i want to be online where they see me and go oh hey, this guy wrote a cool article. I'm going to start following him. I'm going to connect with him on LinkedIn. I'm going to follow him. God, I got to say this now, follow him on Instagram or look at his Facebook page, whatever. There's, or TikTok. God, this keeps (laughs) continuing on. Or podcasts. I mean, the, the ways to be followed and to connect with customers has changed so much. And you've done a really good job. When we were talking offline, you really like the idea of quantifying these things that have t- traditionally just been very subjective and you know this has come up a lot in my podcast. i'm sure we'll hit on some of this in a minute but as marketers and sales we love for people to connect with our brand our company through a webinar or through a cold call and then they attend some event of ours or attend a webinar we get their email they downloaded something and then we we touch them five six seven eight times and then they buy, and that's the super highway of sales. Which means they they will look at the um, the on ramp <laughs> as uh, the webinar, and then I watch them. I watch them for the last ten miles driving towards my company. Yeah. The reality now is the dark funnel is how people buy. They don't get on that expressway. They. They don't download our stuff like they used to. They don't attend our webinars like they used to. They might listen to your podcast, but I can tell you as a podcaster, I can't tell you who's listening today. They might read an article that you wrote, and they might say, I really like this guy, but they aren't going to tell you how they connect. They, 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 they're following you, but they're off your website. So you can never tell. I think it's 65 to 90% of the customer journey is now off-site, meaning it's not on your website. And so it's, as our desire to to quantify and manage their buying <laughs> has grown, our ability to do so has sh- has, has been shrinking <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so I think what we're talking about here today is is more related to after they buy, but um, that informs before they buy. Yeah, well, they've, they've got to have a reason to your point. And this was, I'm amazed
0: at how the industry has really come to appreciate the dark funnel, which is all those activities that the customer is going through before they technically interact with you. What that tells me is we've got to have a knowledge. And this is something I think we as a logistics industry can improve upon is historically, we've had operations people groomed to be senior operations people, sales groomed to be senior sales and management. Marketing tends to come from a marketing background. But the companies who will be most successful over the next 10 years are those who are going to give their employees experience in multiple departments so they can make better assumptions about how the customers are
1: behaving in those dark patterns that we can't really see through our website. Right, right. And it's the net promoter score that we're going to talk about here today. It's It's been coming for a while in that... Um, we're we're all buying stuff, right? So if you buy something online, especially, or even if you pay a bill online, uh, you oftentimes get that thing that says, hey, how was your experience today? Based on your experience with blank, how likely are you to recommend? And by the way, there's certain companies that I don't think I'm surprising them by saying this, but Comcast is a good example. Comcast has a problematic history, right? Every time I deal with Comcast, I get... An email from them saying, based on just on your last experience, not your 30 years as a customer, based on your last interaction with us, how likely are you to recommend us? Because they rec- so what they're looking for is they're looking for, was the experience I had good enough to recommend it? Well, the experience has to be pretty darn good for me to say, hey, you should switch, you should switch cable companies, right? And when, and when you look at someone like Comcast, who's had probably you know, 20 years of not being a good, 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 good customer. I mean, good, uh, good provider. They, they only want to know about the last interaction because they know they have some bad will, right? And measuring a a bad reputation isn't that helpful. Understanding, am I getting better is helpful, but we see that everywhere, right?
0: Growing. Uh, There's hardly anything you can interact with anymore. That's not going to look for some sort of feedback but the question is how what's the quality of that
1: feedback and are we getting
0: enough data to make sense of it
1: right so i think many of you've heard what a net promoter score is so uh, ian give us give us a definition for net promoter score
0: yeah net promoter scoring is uh, a method of surveying your clients to get one a number uh, one out of 10 on how satisfied were they and, and would they recommend you But also to capture a little bit of the word-of-mouth feedback of what does that number mean to you? An eight out of ten to me may hold a completely different value in your mind to what you would rank an eight out of ten. So uh, this was a program that was developed by Fred Reichheld, who is one of the folks behind Bain & Co. Management Consulting in Massachusetts, and came out of Harvard. But this has been evolved over the past few decades. We're now at a point where two-thirds of the Fortune 1,000 companies are leveraging NPS to survey their clients and and figure out where are they doing well and where do they need to make improvements?
1: Right, and I think we were to when we were prepping for this, Ian. We talked a little bit about this. We as consumers, but we also as the, our shippers that we serve, the sl- supply chain partners that we serve, we always want to make better decisions, and we want to make those better decisions using some data. You don't want it to just be subjective. Like, Oh, I like Ian. No, I, I want to be able to say, I like Ian and I can measure his performance in some way that makes sense. And, you know, I've, I've, I'm always, I'm a big believer in key performance indicators. I've always liked those. I'm an automotive guy. I used to joke that we didn't say hello in the morning without exchanging our KPIs, right? <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'll say it one more time. My guys, they hear me say it all the time only the greatest only the best metrics grow up to be key performance indicators i don't want to see 30 measurements i want to see 4 or 5 right yeah. and those 4 or 5 should if those 4 or 5 are correct then those other 30s are more more or less correct that's why they're the key performance indicators but we want to judge things on those key performance indicators kpis but i also realize and I'm sure you've seen this too. Sometimes you have a relationship with a company, and you're like, our metrics, our KPIs look great, but something's wrong, right? So there's something wrong. And I used to say this is the real story is between the numbers. It's it's off the graph, it's not on my KPI. So so I think NPS is going that next step is saying there is a customer experience overall that we want to capture. And how do we do that? Because maybe my K- maybe my KPIs are great. They just don't like you. They just don't like, they didn't like the way they were treated early on or, or they don't like one aspect of your service. And we got to get at that. That matters. Yeah, you make a great point there. It's one thing to
0: measure those KPIs and it's a, a whole additional layer to understand them. And let me give you an example here. Customers, consumers are very particular on speed, which means by nature, if something is delivered overnight, whether we were expecting it or not, we're gonna rate that experience much higher than if something had delivered in seven days. And so that's where you need to be careful. For these companies who are applying NPS and are sharing those scores with their logistics providers, oftentimes you will find that they don't match up A to B. If, you're, if all of your next day is running on UPS, for example, you might be seeing 60, 70 scores out of 100 that's on the higher end. Right? Comparatively, if you also have larger items running through an Estes or a J.B. Hunt or a Schneider, and those are going to deliver in five or seven days, by nature, you're going to see those scores closer to a 30 than a 70 so that the the gap there is a retailer a shipper will challenge their providers and go hey you're you're half as as, as high on your scores as the next right. carrier over here but you have to be able to segment was it parcel was it freight was it short transit was it long was it a drop shipper or a fulfillment center right there's apples 10 different apples. ways exactly and so it's important not just to capture the number but to understand where it's coming from and why and ideally, to dig into it and actually find the word of mouth behind it, what did the consumer say that score meant? What did the driver say that score meant? What did the delivering terminal or the
1: DCs in between say that score meant? The numbers, the numbers are a starting point for understanding more about the customer. And again, I think you have said also, I think this was interesting. You said, Joe, there's an overall NPS for my experience with a company. But one of the, and we'll get into this in a minute, but you said you and urgency selling are focused on the sales guy what impact does the sales process or sale or the or their support of you during your buying process have on the NPS score so there's so there's the overall and then there's the components that make up the overall so you said something to me when we we're prepping about they might have a beef with the way they were build their invoicing or they don't like the technology tech platform you're using or don't like the fact that when I call, I don't have a dedicated uh, resource answering the phone. I have to, you know, have a, a number. Little things that you say, well, th- th- that's fine. That works just fine. It's not for you to say it's just fine. It's your customer to say it's just fine. So <laughs> elaborate a little bit on what I was just talking about there. The the components versus the overall NPS score.
0: Yeah, well, let's let's break that apart first. Where different types of companies are applying NPS. So if you look at the retailers themselves, the Walmarts, the Amazons of the world. They're using it. <laughs> they're using it, right? But they are measuring that that entire customer journey from the moment you go to their website to how you're planning that order to what delivery carrier is being chosen right. to any returns process, whatever may be touching the customer is all rolled into that one score. So at the retailer level, it's still it can be used as a divining rod but you're not really able to separate, okay, were they happy with the website but unhappy with the carrier or unhappy with the invoicing or vice versa, right? The second place you'll see it being applied is at the carrier level, like a J.B. Hunt, where, okay, now you've got it segmented down to, I know it's within the transportation or part of the logistics experience. The gap then is how many different carriers are you using and if you only have data for one of your 20, how are you going to use that to improve your service across the board, right? right. So where I find the strongest application of NPS is really at the 3PL or freight forwarder level, because there, if you're, if you're running through a 3PL, now you've got the leverage to measure it on your 10, 15, 20 different types of carriers and collect enough data to make that accessible for
1: trending and and understanding what those numbers mean. Right. And then you might find out as soon as you get into that, you need to start looking at the data and you say, you know, we do a great job on, it looks like they're really happy with these carriers. These carriers are the ones who are delivering to this area, which is close, close by our distribution center. These are a little further out. These are in rural areas. These are a little more challenging. Those are taking longer because of where they're located. And that was that. So you talked about, you know, kind of looking at that data and digging in and understanding it better, but we need to do that rather than get it at the carrier level where you say is for a shipper, they should say, who is your 3PL? Who is your carrier? And how do you want to, you know, if they were to, if they were to measure the overall, and then they can dig in and say, where does the customer experience, where's the NPS a little lower. So talk a little bit more about what, that NPS looks like? Who gets, who creates it, who, who creates it, who owns it and who gives it to who?
0: (laughs) That's an excellent question. You see a couple of different formats here too, where you've got what I would call a decentralized model. You might have a team who sends the surveys and a separate team who receives them and a separate team who analyzes the data. When it is decentralized in that way, as it is with most enterprise companies, they don't have the visibility to each other. And you might end up with the analysis team who's saying, hey, look, we got we got an uptick over here. Our scores went up 5%. What they didn't know was that the team sending out the surveys sent them at 10 a.m. instead of at 4 p.m. And that may have made all the difference, right? You catch somebody after their coffee, they give you a better, better score there. Right. What I believe is the stronger format is when you have a centralized team who is owning that that uh NPS process end to end. And where I've seen this make incredible differences is you have a direct line of sight between any front-end changes to how you adjusted those surveys to any of the back-end data that came out. And when the action team, so the folks who you've analyzed the data and now you've made some decisions on what we need to do with that data, typically there will be a customer service component built into that NPS team where I've seen, for example, let's say somebody ordered a couch and it was meant to be over the threshold, but for whatever reason, the driver had dropped it on the driveway, right? And maybe they weren't the customer wasn't too happy about that. A lot of times for, for people to feel good about their experience, they need to feel like they're heard. And I think you and I would probably agree with this. I don't expect perfection out of every experience ever, right? We're all human, right? But I want to know, that if something was one click off the mark, that I'm being heard about that and that it's gonna improve moving forward. Right. So what I've seen when the customer service team is rolled into the customer experience team, they get the data and they may contact you as the customer personally, an actual phone call, human being right. one-to-one to say, hey, Joe, what what really happened here and how would you like that to improve? And okay, and then to close the loop and say, hey, Joe, you know, you spoke to me earlier this week. You told me what the issue was and, and how you wanted that driver to be different. And so I took that feedback and I gave it directly to our VP of operations who gave it to the terminal managers. And we've had discussions with every driver to ensure that you're going to be supported moving forward. And when that happens, you see the scores flip. You might go from a one out of 10 to a 10 out of 10 from that same customer.
1: Great. Right you mentioned the couch and uh, that, that it was a real world experience for me. I was at my sister and her husband's house uh, over the weekend and they got brand new couches and she said, it was crazy. She said, when I ordered these couches, they said, do you want them set up? And she's like, I don't, I don't really need them set up. I mean, they're couches. I, and she, and in, she inter- interpreted that as uh, assembled. And so she said, no, just, just deliver them. And so the guys get there, and by the way, it's bitter, cold morning, there's snow on the ground, ice on the ground and uh here in Michigan, and these guys show up and they and she's like, "Oh yeah, p- just bring' them in the front door, and they're like, "Oh no, we're leave me at the curb these are have two heavy couches, and she's like, "What?" she goes, "You didn't pay for this and by the way, the guys were a little rude about like, "Hey, that's not our problem kind of thing and uh so she just <laughs> runs in the house and gets cash and says. Hey, I'll pay you this much to take these into my house. Oh wow! And so, what is what is the score back to that? Is you could say, well, you didn't you didn't want setup, which is I interpreted your words wrong. And I'm the customer. I, I can't imagine she's going to say she was delighted with that experience. Yeah, wild. <laughs> but anyway, so when which which group typically owns NPS? Would that be within marketing, or would that be a senior management function? where does who owns that within a company let's just say i'm at 3pl listening to this podcast and i want to say you own this
0: <laughs> yeah so uh, it's usually tied somewhere between customer service and and sometimes rolled up into sales and marketing but you've got to i think what we're seeing is is a trend now where you have customer experience officers right if you don't have a cxo right. you might have a cx director And you want somebody who's come from an operations background, be that or or sales or customer service, but somebody who speaks the customer's language and who has a working knowledge of how the transportation and warehousing is working in between so that they know how to bird dog these issues and they know exactly
1: who to go to, when and why. Right. And, you know, I have a good friend of mine and he uh, went to school for market research and got his master's in that. And he's a marketing guy. And That always felt like, oh, that's a little bit wonky, but it because they're creating data and they weren't part of the sales process. But more and more, I think we're looking to those guys and saying, hey, tell us what the customer wants in terms of the product or service we're developing for them, designing for them. But then also tell me, you know, step by step, what, what bugs them? Where is their customer delight versus where there's customer frustration? And. These are these are not always intuitive for us. We assume I gave Ian this great new tech platform and he's going to be delighted with it because I used it and everyone else loves it. And then I find out that Ian really wants a dedicated head over here that talks to him every week. And I say, no, you don't need, Ian, you don't need that. I've already given you what you need. Well, don't tell me what I need, right? And I, I remember I've, I've had this many times as I advise large shippers how to select a 3PL where the the guys at the shipper or the 3PL say, oh no, we don't do weekly meetings. You get this report. It's it's automated. And then I get that automated report and I look at it and I go, This, I don't understand this. It's not intuitive. It's not good for me. And they, is it well done? Yeah, but I didn't want that. I wanted a weekly meeting. And I I had a market Research lady on Paula Courtney on my podcast recently, and she talked a lot about the idea of, and we've all had this experience where you call company and you want to talk to someone, and they say first thing first thing they say is your call is valuable to us, we look forward to talking to you, and then so the next thing you always hear, is, which by the way, when you wait for thirty minutes, you're like it really, I really? want to take that off, but then um, <laughs> the next thing you might hear is. Uh, call volumes are higher, and that that to me is the most overused phrased in automated automated uh systems right now. Oh, uh, call volumes are higher, yeah, you say that every single time I've called here ten times <laughs> always high. just call that the new normal, right and then they tell you if you want to you know immediate service, go to our website as if Ian didn't know they had a website, and I feel like when you say those three things sometimes I'm angry just hearing it. If I'm already kind of frustrated with something and I call you to get resolution and you tell me, Mike, your call is valuable to me, but I'm not going to answer it. Call volumes are higher. Go to our website. I go, hey, you know what? That wasn't a great customer experience. I knew you had a website. I don't want to hear that your call volumes are high. And I don't believe that I am your top priority. Right. So these are all things that we kind of, see in our personal life that also we might be doing to our customers.
0: Great point. You know, I think what I'm seeing is a movement away from over-reliance on the sales rep, meaning that historically in in freight forwarding and 3PL, you had a sales rep who was responsible for everything. You find the account, you court the account, you bring it on, and then you own it right and if you're if you're also responsible for owning and managing and growing that account that's going to limit your ability to hunt new business so what i'm seeing especially with the f- folks who have a an eye on customer experience is there's more of a segmentation sales needs to stay involved at the executive level but it's becoming more common again where you have account managers or even a control tower staffed in operations Because to your point, the customers want, uh, if I need to speak to somebody to understand what this report means, I need to speak to somebody. Right. And that that doesn't mean I need a VP or a chief on the phone every time. But if there's a specialist who's familiar with my account, who gets the data both from operations and from NPS, if you've got that running, then they can answer my day-to-day questions. And I'm okay backing that up with the weekly report and maybe a a monthly or quarterly visit with the uh, executives at the sales level. Right.
1: And, you know, we have a lot of companies that I think traditionally in the freight brokerage model, you have cradle to grave where I am the one who got the lead. I made the cold call. I got the business. And whether it's five shipments a week or 500 shipments a week, I'm in charge of it. And but I'm also a sales guy. So I might you might assign people to help me manage my accounts. And I might be doing manage my big of my big five hundred shipments very differently than the guy who sits in the next cubicle over. So there's an inconsistency there. I might have a team that was given to me, and I, and by the way, I might also be a little uh, closed about sharing information about my accounts. They're my accounts, right? And when I leave, I plan to take them with me. I don't I don't tell anybody that. But and the and the other thing is, I'm I have an incentive to go get new business. My incentive isn't to take you know care of this obviously i get paid by that current client but you know there i also have a reason to make other phone calls because i want to make more money so that's the that's i sometimes think is the weakness of the cradle to grave and i will say this i always like the the model of i have dedicated i may be of an sdr a, a sales development rep or who's going and getting me business getting me good out uh, good appointments then i have the sales guy and then i have uh the account management team which might be you know, might call customer service and now the customer says i i've worked with all of these guys and if any of them should leave and god knows that's happening these days i'm not at risk that they're going to walk out with my customer because they might say yeah ian sold it but i talked to joe every damn day <laughs> right so when ian leaves i miss him but not moving with him <laughs> right
0: and that's just a risky environment to be in you know historically Sales has been in a position where we sell as one to many. I'm one sales guy, but I've got to go engage with multiple ranks, multiple departments at the customer, customer service, operations, finance, you name it, right? Whereas to your point, if we get into a team to team environment, you see drastically less turnover. And I'm talking 70, 80% less turnover because you've got the relationships that are layered over each other. But also because you've got better, cleaner data to work with, where they understand why Joe's shipping is different than Ian's brokerage. Now you can quantify it because you've got those KPIs on it. Right, right,
1: yeah. So I, when when we were prepping, I, I typed in NPS. What is the definition? I, I wanted to understand more about this Net Promoter Score. And there's a million companies out there that are that are say, hey, we'll come in and we'll help you create this NPS. Now, in the you've you've worked at companies that use NPS. How did you guys implement it? Really,
0: it it sparked from customer requests. When when I've seen that the the SVPs and the CEOs get engaged with the enterprise accounts, right? I, I've seen the the customers executives say, "Hey, if you want to play ball in our park, we need you to be able to measure where you're different, where you're improving, and where you need to improve against other similar carriers." So that's usually where the aha moment happens, and and these companies are, are beginning to adopt the model. It does take some setup, right? You have to understand. It's not something you're going to flip like a light switch overnight. You've got to have some planning. You've got to have the bandwidth, which is why often there's a CX officer involved now. But then even once you have it stood up, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. And I can put a number on that, too. In most cases, companies who are standing up NPS or even who have been operating it for many years, when they send out these surveys, they will tend to get a one, two, three, maybe 5% response rate at the most. But what I've seen with the most strategic RPLs is they're getting above 15% response rates, sometimes 17, 18% right. response rates. And that's where you're going to be able to trend the data and, and let me let me give you a real world example here. Yeah. Speaking of couches, since we were earlier, there is an environment. I think this was Target, and uh, it may have been Ashley Furniture as their manufacturer. Okay. So Target is looking at their NPS scores and going, "Hey, we're seeing some lower scores on these bulky items like couches." So they're going to take that NPS score and use it to pressure. You know, they're going to come to Ian and they're going to come to Joe and say, "Hey, look, your score is lower." do something to fix it, right? right? But unless you have that data behind it, we can't really see what is breaking, Where where is this actually going wrong, right? In an environment where you have 15% plus response rates, now you can start to break it apart. And where I've seen companies do that is to, to break it down to the SKU level Right. Break it down to the lane level because that same skew going into California is going to be different from Illinois. So what they found looking at uh, at those couches was that it wasn't a universal problem with the couches at all. It was very specific lanes. And even within those lanes, it was a specific D.C. and a specific terminal where damages could happen or delays could happen. So by being hands-on with the customer experience officer and the customer service team making direct contact, not just to the customer, but also the driver and the terminal and the DCs, what they found out was that the problem, why there were so many damages and delays, were not actually at the logistics level. It was coming from the manufacturer where the couches were being shipped vertically rather than horizontally, number one. And number two, the customer said the packaging material of itself wasn't, it didn't have enough integrity. So it was just prone to damages, especially while being shipped vertical. So that's an example of where, even though you have a retailer running NPS, they can only take it so far, but they didn't have the data to show the carriers where it was. But the 3PL uncovered, hey, it's not just one issue. And it goes all the way back to the manufacturer right? Then then you can come up with a, a solution to permanently and proactively eliminate those damages. And there your turnover stays down.
1: Yep. And I think this speaks to a, a few things as you speak about this. It tells me I can't, NPS is kind of forcing me below the superficial, beyond the, well, they're just delivering a damage, right? I have to go deeper. I would also, you keep mentioning a CX officer. So a customer experience officer that's more likely to be in a company that is tech centric in my experience. So I think we're going to see, I mean, I, and, and if you look at our business, we we got the traditional logistics and transportation guys, the supply chain guys and the techies. And I think we're building more and more hybrids every single day. Right. That's the truth. And I think, I think you're going to see some of that CX stuff move over if it's not already in. And I think I know when larger logistics and transportation companies were seeing that, but, I think once you get that CX officer and they say we're really going to drive down into the customer experience and understand what they want. And I think there's another aspect to this is, Ian, I can't tell you what exactly what my customers want. I tell you what I think my customers want. And I'm probably significantly off. I mean, we've all had that experience where you tell your customer, oh, well, what do you, what do you want? And sometimes they say things like, this is the crazy thing about talking to um Shippers sometimes as they say, hey, just you know, good service and the right price. But then when you then they grade you, (laughs) you're gonna get something different. So yeah. And it might have something to do with your tech platform, right? It might have something to do with when I called with a problem. There's a million things that you know they want beyond the superficial. So we really have to this NPS helps us drive down and understand our customer better, which is good for all of us.
0: Right. Now, let me circle back to one of your questions earlier, the impact on sales. We've talked about the impact once you own the account, when, you're, when your turnover is cut down by more than half and your profitability will go up as well, right? Now let's turn that around and think about how that can be applied to grow the business. As you just described, that hasn't changed in as long as I've been around. You talk to a new customer and they're basically gonna ask you, where are your strengths and service lanes what is your on-time performance? What is your claims rate or your you know damage rate? And and can you give me good rates, right? And what that means is there's no differentiation. You can't really tell. All, all of those brokers, all of those 3PLs are going to sound identical. Yeah, some of them are going to have stronger networks in the East versus the West, but you can't see that if you're the customer. Whereas if you've got this data-rich approach to CX behind you, Now you have some marketing to arm your sales force. Now, instead of going out and saying, hey, Joe, can I talk to you about where we could save some money? Can I learn about your business? You can come in and say, hey, Joe, I've worked with retailers and distributors like yours who have applied CX in their logistics, and they're now seeing 9 to 12% higher profitability. Is that something you're interested in? Would you like to learn more of how your competitors are accelerating? Now you've got a differentiator. And so when that CX has been shared with the sales teams, I've seen an immediate shift from cold calling on the shipping supervisor, the logistics level, to instead getting owner investor, chief, and VP level responses on the first message, because you can prove in your KPIs where that difference is and why it's worth a conversation.
1: Yep. And circling back to what we said earlier, everything that it was once completely subjective, is we're, we're working as consumers in our consumer life, but also in, in our work lives to put some objective decision-making around it. Um, So if I was to go and buy a car 40 years ago, I would get in the car and I'd drive around from dealership to dealership. And I would get in cars, drive them around, talk to the sales guys, right? Collect a whole bunch of business cards. It's very subjective. I mean, maybe I like this one dealership because I like the salesperson better. Maybe uh. So it's not the car necessarily. So someone said, why did you buy this SUV versus this SUV? It could be very subjective. Well, now if I was to buy a car, I'm starting online. I'm looking, I'm comparing like models. And I have real research to look at, a lot of it. People are doing that more and more. So in our business, transportation, logistics, customers want that. And so it won't be long before... You're going to start seeing customers in this business. I mean, your competitors in this business saying, hey, we're the, we got a very high MPS score. And by the way, I also shared with you when we were talking, I saw this John Larkin, one of the one of the industry leaders here. John Larkin shared something on LinkedIn from Isometric Technologies, introducing the inaugural ISO Awards. And it was, it was basically objective measurements for who's it wants one, one standard of truth, one one place for the truth for shipping. And it's got a whole bunch of it's got Load Smart on there, it's got uh Convoy, Coyote. There's a number of companies on there. I don't know exactly how they did it, but to give it when it name like isometric technologies, I'm pretty sure they started with numbers. So I think you're gonna have more and more companies competing with we are objectively better. Not subjectively, not because you like Ian. Not because um, not because our marketing was slick, but you're going with us because we're objectively better. And I think this is where NPS is is going to take us. Absolutely. You know, one other thing, I'll throw this out there. Probably late '90s, I was working one of my last things uh, as a product engineer. Oh, I like product management, program management in automotive. I worked on the Wrangler, and we were developing the Rubicon, the Jeep Wrangler. And uh, what a cool project to work on! And I loved, I love Jeep. And thing is, with when you're working at Jeep, everybody who's there thinks that they are the customer because they're the customer, but they also the, the product team that's making it. And I remember we had listed for the Rubicon exactly what we thought the customer wanted, and so we listed all these things. And then we were, we have a lot of different workshops. And I remember we hired, hired an outside consultant, and I remember him being in that meeting and saying, "So you've got these lists of." product features that you want and he, and they said where'd these come from and He said well I, I compiled the list so i knew. i said a lot of it's quality data that we had things that we weren't doing well today here's some other stuff that we got from you know market market research all this and he says so they want disc brakes on this we didn't have disc brakes this <laughs> is embarrassing at the time and he says and yeah and, somebody, and, and everybody chimes in they've been asking for disc brakes for 20 years and he said okay and what? and, and so we went down this list and he said If they asked for it for 20 years, if they told you this is what they want and this is what they are doing in the aftermarket, and you're telling me this is customer delight, I'm telling you it's not. This is just getting to, if you give them exactly what they want, it's not customer delight. Giving them something that they really wanted but didn't know to ask, that's where you start getting customer delight. And you can't get there unless you really have a deep, deep understanding of your customer. A perfect example is the Apple products. People love to say that Steve Jobs did not know his customer. He knew his customer so well that he said, they're never going to ask for this because they don't know it's possible. I gave them something they didn't know possible. I knew knew from my deep knowledge of them that they would love it. Same with the minivan. Chrysler didn't develop a minivan because soccer moms and dads were saying, I want one. They just said, we can create this and we know they're going to love it just based on all the research we have. So I think the first step is really understanding where we're at today, but then go deeper and deeper with these NPS and and objective measures and more customer discussions about what they like and what they hate, (laughs) what they love. (laughs) That's it. I, I think information is the real currency.
0: And and we need deeper, better quality information about customers, so we can get ahead of that curve
1: on on what they want that they don't even know to ask for, right? And it starts with stuff like this. It starts with a, it start, well, You have to have a focus. So I think this is why you're going to see more customer experience officers. You're going to have more customer experience teams that are saying we're really going to dig in and understand. You know, what are we doing that we think is great, but our customers think is okay. And one of the things we're just missing out on, right? (laughs) And there's an old book, I think it's called Megatrends. And it always talked about this idea, the high tech, high touch. The further we go down the path of high tech, the more we yearn for high touch. So it's the little things that you can do beyond, you know, where I say, Hey, Ian, it's easy. You just go to my website and you 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 type this in and you go, This is elegant, but I wanted a conversation. I wanted human interaction because I'm a human.
0: <laughs> so what that tells me is we rather than automating the customer interaction, we need to automate our internal processes to free our team for the customer right. interaction. Great point.
1: Yeah, let the robots do the robot work and let uh let the humans do the human work. <laughs> so um I'm gonna give a little summary here. This is all kind of it's all it's all relatively new to me and then, I'm, I, then I want I get your final thoughts on the topic. So I'm talking to Ian Aguilar and we're talking from urgency selling and we're talking about why NPS or net promoter score matters. And um we're seeing it already. Co- companies are using it. Shippers are the, the largest shippers the top the Fortune 1000 are using this. It is coming our our shippers our, our supply chain partners they they're going to look to us and they're going to want to make objective decisions. They want to make better decisions. And they're going to start using net promoter scores. They're going to start using other stuff. And I think we have to get out in front of this and really start using this data. Not just because our these companies are using it, we should use it, but really to improve our customer experience. Everybody loves to say our customer experience is enhanced by this cool technology. I think oftentimes, maybe most of the time it is, but it You can't make these, you can't assume on this stuff. You have to actually get busy with research and and start talking to your customers, start measuring this stuff. Like, you know, not not just the overall, but what is the NPS for my my sales team? What is the NPS for my account management team for my billing? I need to understand the entire customer experience, quantify it the best I can, and then use NPS to consistently make it better. And then watch that trend go up and be able to say, I'm serving my customers better. Therefore, I'm going to get more money. Going to make my sales process much easier too. Enough of my blather. I want to hear your final thoughts on this, Ian.
0: (laughs) Well, you hit the nail on the head there. I would say that NPS and, and visibility into CX is critical because it's going to, from a logistics provider perspective, reduce your damages and delays, reduce the potential for invoice inaccuracies shrink the operational costs of owning the account, shrink the burden on sales to be able to differentiate our team in the eyes of a customer, and ultimately increase your profitability by an average of
1: eight to 12%. Now I know, I don't know if you can mention the name, but if you can, please do. I know when we were talking the other day, you mentioned you were do, you've were you actually been using this and being able to prove out to, when, when you re- interact with customers, able to prove out that, yeah, this this does work. This is why you're able to make the point to customers that we objectively are better. And you've said this worked very well.
0: Absolutely. You know, the company that I think is, is really driving the cutting edge here would be Estes, the Estes family and Estes forwarding in particular, where they're leveraging the data, not just for improvement in their network, but also for employee education so that they can develop and build more senior executives over the long term. And uh, if someone were interested to reach out, I could absolutely share where the data is being used in case studies, white papers, and lead generation, demand generation to create those chief
1: and VP executive level leads. Excellent. Excellent. So Ian, who do you work with? Who's your sweet spot?
0: My sweet spot is the logistics providers and technology, be that in the transportation or finance management end, who is going after enterprise and middle market accounts and specifically needs to engage the executives across multiple departments to be able to lock in that relationship and create a high close rate in their sales funnel.
1: All right. All right. So, what I'll do, Ian, is I will put a link to your LinkedIn profile so people can reach out and talk to you. I, I really like what you're doing. And again, sales has always been in that realm of, you know, very subjective, right? You don't know why it's working. And customer experience has always been over there where you're like, yeah, we're, we're yeah, they love our customers, love us, right? But not being very good with data. And I love what you're doing where you say, we can use this data and get better and better. And by the way, I learned this a long time ago in my career. If you're going to talk to the big boss about why you want to spend more money, let's just say in the sales area or in the in the customer experience area, the way to get that is to be able to prove something, which you got to make a business case. You have to be able to show some numbers. Right? Numbers matter. So if you can say, hey, boss, the reason I want to spend more on customer experience and get into NPS is because look here, this is the way to go. That's and it. And boy, we all... How many companies do you talk to that need an edge, right? They, <laughs> they are all looking for that edge. This is not an easy business. So maybe NPS is that edge that companies can use to get better.
0: NPS. And, and really, how are we leveraging our marketing and sales channels to speak to process gaps and quantified impacts rather than just features and benefits?
1: Love it. Love it. Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to educate us on Net Promoter Score. Beautiful, Joe. I appreciate you. All right, man. And uh, thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we
0: engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.